Last night, I began to explain what I mean when I talk about our Messiah being divine. And I explained, I'm not saying that he is just the chiefest of all the chief angels or that he's you know, more glorious than a human being and that he's the highest category of semi-divine being. I'm saying that he is God alongside God, that he shares the unique transcendence of God. And we talked about why the early believers didn't just come right out and say something like, Yeshua is God. We talked about the divine Messiah realization, which is that someone who appeared at first to be merely a wonder worker and a teacher, it was discovered after he went away that he was actually far more than he had ever appeared to be, that he was in fact equal with God. Now, this also creates a realization theologically that God's nature is different maybe than we thought. Because being monotheists, we maybe had not realized until this troubling moment that there's a multiplicity in the divine unity, that God and Messiah are one at the same time, though, being different. And we defined a term binatarian monotheism, and I made everyone say it, and they all said it, and it was fun. And it's the idea that God is two in one, and that Messiah is God alongside God. But this morning, our topic is, is our belief that Messiah is divine a contradiction with what we learn about God's nature in the Hebrew Bible? Have we departed from Judaism and the Jewish view of God if we say we believe that Yeshua is divine? And to begin to take us down that journey, I want to ask you to use your imagination I want you to imagine that you could be the high priest in ancient Israel for one day. And if you could be the high priest for any one day of the year, you would probably want to pick Yom Kippur. You endure a night-long vigil following a seven-day period of ritual purification and spiritual purification. You prepare to enter the Holy of Holies inside the temple. You imagine what it will be like to see the ark. And to see the glory, the kavod above the ark, the glory of the divine, which you've heard is a fire inside a cloud. You come up to the threshold, you are about to enter in the coals of the fire pan, you feel the warmth of them in your hand, and you're about to pour incense powder on them as you enter through the veil. You can smell the powder, and your alarm clock rings, and you're in your own bed, and it was a dream. But it was a nice dream. But dream or not, you were there. You were on the verge. You were on the threshold. You came to the edge and you nearly saw the divine presence, but you did not enter in. You almost saw the appearance of God on earth. And that is how it is in the Hebrew Bible. And that is how it is in Judaism. The nature of God and the divine Messiah realization, the Hebrew Bible brings us to the edge. Judaism brings us to the edge, but doesn't cross over it. They bring us to the threshold, and what we find is that monotheism might not be as simple as it seems. The nature of God in the Hebrew Bible is actually quite interesting. God is one, singular. He's the greater than whom none exists. He is the without end, the Ein Sof. He is the omnipresent. He has a transcendence, a uniqueness that no other being possesses. But God is not only everywhere, he's also in specific places. And when we begin to think about that, our mind hurts. He is in some places more than others. And this leads us to a puzzle. How can the infinite 
enter into finite space. The rabbis made a midrash about this in Numbers Rabbah 12.4. They said it may be likened to a cave situated by the seashore. The sea rages and the cave is filled with water, but the sea is not diminished. Similarly, the tent of meeting was filled with the radiance of the Shekhinah, which was not diminished in the universe. God can do all things, things we can hardly imagine. His nature is beyond our comprehension. His presence is on earth as the word, as the spirit, as the glory, without leaving his place as the omnipresent. He appears as a fire in a cloud, as a storm above a mountain, as a fire in a bush, even as a human being, all in the Hebrew Bible. He also sends out his agents to do his work, and his agents are all throughout the world. In the Hebrew Bible and Judaism, these agents of God that come into the world include angelic messengers, chief angels, saints who return from the afterlife, such as Moses, Elijah, or Enoch, his spoken word, which goes out from him and does his bidding in the world, his spirit and his abiding presence, which in Judaism is called the Shekhinah. Any statement that begins with, God cannot, is a non-starter. In other words, objections to the idea that God and Messiah can share the same divine nature cannot begin with, but God can't do that. Now, we Messianic Jews humbly say to our mainstream Jewish peers that Yeshua is not a non-Jewish concept. And that is what I want to argue for this morning. God is God. And our avenues for knowing some things about him do not include rejecting in advance what he reveals about himself. The divine Messiah realization that Yeshua made known to some Jewish disciples in the early part of the first century includes two ideas that potentially conflict with monotheism. The first is the idea that God's oneness includes more than one entity, that God and Messiah are different and yet one in being. The other potential conflict with monotheism is the idea that God has entered into humanity by being born as a divine man. But it is certainly true, as our Jewish community reminds us, that Messiah, the fact that Messiah would be divine, was not disclosed in the Hebrew Bible. I know there are some verses that people will interpret sometimes as predictions or foretellings that when Messiah came, he would be divine, and I don't believe that those are accurate readings of those verses. I believe the divinity of Messiah was a complete and total surprise beyond anything ever mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. But what was disclosed in the Hebrew Bible is the surpassing wonder of God's nature and the astonishing modes in which God operates in the world. As I keep saying, monotheism may not be as simple as it seems. Now, what we believe seems to go against the core belief system of Judaism. After all, God is singular and unique, and we affirm that, although it sounds like we might not be affirming it by saying these things. There are human beings and angels, but in a separate class beyond human beings and beyond angels and beyond any chief angel, there is a category all of its own, to which belongs one being, and that being is God. He is a class apart. He is alone in his class. Richard Balcom says that God has a transcendent uniqueness. No being is like God in the sense of having his transcendent uniqueness. 
He alone caused and is the cause of all things. He's not the highest of a class of heavenly beings. He is the only Ein Sof, the only without end. But what we believe in Messianic Judaism is that Messiah shares this transcendent uniqueness with God. Now, ancient rabbis from the second century onward referred to our belief as a heresy. They called it the heresy of the two powers in heaven. Now, are we monotheists or are we ditheists? Do we believe in one God or do we believe in two? Well, monotheism isn't as simple as it sounds. And I want to show you that in the Hebrew Bible, we already see complexities in God's nature that should open our minds to him doing something mind-blowing. Is there a plurality within God's unity? Is God's nature differentiated? In the Hebrew Bible, God operates in the world in at least six ways. He operates in the world through the activity of the divine spirit. He acts in the world through the agency of divine words. He acts in this world in forms in which God appears. He is in this world as glory, glory as God's mediated presence. God also operates in the world through the agency of the angel of the Lord. And finally, in the most mysterious picture of all, one that comes at the end of the Hebrew Bible's time period, as the heavenly redeemer in Daniel 7. Now, in all of these six categories, we see God's oneness expressed in a kind of plurality. I want to suggest that the Hebrew Bible brings us to the very edge of believing in a plurality in God's nature. God is above the universe and beyond it, but His Spirit is here working in the world. His spoken words come into the world and make things happen. He appears as a pillar of fire and even as a human being. So it makes me laugh when Jews for Judaism makes videos and say, God, you quote the verse that says, I am not a man. And they say, God would never become a man. He has appeared as a human being in stories in the Torah without ceasing to also be above all things. The glory was inside the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and later the temple. But we also read that no temple can contain God. Is he in the temple or not in the temple? Yes. His angel comes. And the angel is God without limiting God to the place that the angel is. And in one of the latest pictures, the, the, the latest in history, pictures of God in heaven, there are two thrones and someone is standing with God who is God alongside God, the only one in heaven who can stand with God. Now, I want to take a closer look at the example of God's spirit because as soon as you open the Torah... You're already reading about his spirit in the second verse. It says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the tahom, of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the water. Now, the Hebrew word tahom, which is translated as the deep, and it refers to the primeval ocean that was around at that mysterious time that Genesis talks about, it is the exact linguistic equivalent of the Akkadian word tiamat which if you know the ancient myths, you know this is the Akkadian name of the chaos dragon or the great sea serpent of myth that was slain by Marduk. Now in the myth, a god, with a little g, slew the dragon and made heaven and earth out of the two halves of the dragon's body. But in Genesis, no being raises itself against God. 
No being is in the same category as God. The whole Near Eastern myth is portrayed as a symbol in Genesis 1. And that symbol is this. Tahom is not a creature who could vaunt itself against God. Tahom is merely the ocean. And Tahom is not a challenge to God. Tahom is simply something that God gives order to. God made all the order that we see around us. We count on the sun rising every morning. We count on the sea staying separate from the land. God made all of that order, and life is only possible because God made that order. The purpose of God's order is life. And the scene of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 hovering over the Tahom is a total diff- totally different story than Marduk slaying Tiamat with a sword. The deep is not a force that can oppose God. It is actually potential which God turns into life. Now, as God's Spirit is doing all of this over the Tahom, where is God? We don't see the answer here. It doesn't say where God is. It just says that His Spirit is hovering over the Tahom. And this raises a mystery. What is the relationship between God and God's Spirit? Is God's Spirit a part of God? Does God even have parts? Most theologians say no. Has God left the place of omnipresence and located himself in one place, hovering over the sea? Now, the usual way of telling stories about God in the Hebrew Bible, avoid carefully representing God as leaving his place as the omnipresent and coming into the world. God always remains above all things while various aspects of God are imminent, sent down to operate within the world. God himself, then, is differentiated in some degree in the Hebrew Bible from various manifestations like his spirit, his glory, or a form in which he appears. There's a very real sense in which there's already a plurality of God because of his omnipresence and his ability to act locally while remaining transcendent. If we had more time, I would go on to talk about God's spoken word. I would talk about the forms in which God appears. I would talk about God as a pillar of fire inside a cloud. I would talk about the glory that Moses asked to see more of and the fact that God's glory comes in different degrees or different levels of potency on the earth. And I would talk about the one like a son of man from Daniel 7 who stands beside his throne. In the case of each one of these examples of God's nature in the Hebrew Bible, God remains omnipresent while some manifestation of his being appears on the earth. His spoken word creates... After all, God did not come down and bring this order into the world. He spoke his word, and his spoken word came down and created the order. He said, let there be, and it was. God did not abandon the universe to lead Israel in the wilderness, but his manifestation was there in the pillar of fire inside the cloud. God's glory isn't a simple thing. It has degrees. Moses saw more glory than anyone else, and yet Moses could stand before God and say, show me more glory. And how many levels are there? God said, well, I can't show all of it to you. And in a very curious tale, stand behind a rock and through a crack and I'll pass by backwards so you won't see my front. The the number of levels of glory appears to be quite large. Kabbalists say 10. Maybe it's more than 10. The angel of the Lord sometimes seems to be a manifestation of God himself. And the angels prostrate themselves before God. But there is one who is not prostrate before God, but instead is standing before him or beside him or even enthroned beside him, the Son of Man. Why are there two thrones in Daniel chapter 7? Daniel Boyarin, who's not a Messianic Jew, but a leading scholar of rabbinic Jewish literature, 
says that in Daniel 7, there are two divine figures. Two divine figures, and yet one God. Daniel 7 is easily the most remarkable passage in all of the Hebrew Bible. When you think about our belief that Yeshua is God alongside God, it really resists being read as a description of a chief angel in Daniel 7. And it resists being read as if the people of Israel are the only ones being referred to in Daniel 7. The one like a son of man is enthroned in glory beside God in front of the angels. He comes with the clouds, which is something that only God does. He doesn't just reign for a lifetime, but according to Daniel 7, he reigns forever and ever. Now, it's not the primary intention of all these depictions of God in the Hebrew Bible to hint at in mysteries and figures a not yet revealed doctrine of the Trinity. On the other hand, there is a pattern, a pattern of variations and differences among the forms of the divine presence. Now, if later, after the Hebrew Bible, we were to find out that Yeshua was divine before he was human, and that the Spirit has roles which are different from God and Messiah, then we can only say that we were to some degree prepared for it by the Hebrew Bible. We were prepared to understand that God's nature is not at all simple to understand. We could not deduce the divine Messiah from the Hebrew Bible, but if it is so revealed, it would be consistent when we look back and see the things God can do with his nature and his presence. Now, what about the way ancient Jewish texts, ancient rabbinic texts talk about God? We just had a quick look at the Hebrew Bible. Were the rabbis careful to always avoid giving the impression that God's nature is a plural unity? Are we Messianic Jews apostates? And is our belief in Messiah's divinity a form of blasphemy? After all, the ancient rabbis read the same Hebrew Bible that we claim is the basis of our faith and belief. And they did not accept that Yeshua is the one sent from God to deliver Israel and to save the world. But shouldn't we see some beliefs similar to ours in the writings of the rabbis? Because after all, they read the same Hebrew Bible. Well, here is the truth as I see it. Yeshua came before, excuse me, before Yeshua came and after, there are Jewish texts that fit the pattern of plurality within God's unity. Let me say that again. Before the time that Yeshua came, there were already Jewish texts that spoke about God's nature in a way that's consistent with our belief in the plurality within unity. And after Yeshua came, the rabbis continued writing about God in ways that I believe are consistent with our belief in a plurality in God's singular nature. Jewish writings before Yeshua spoke about many agents for God in the world. Maybe you've heard of the Logos. Philo, in particular, liked to talk about the Logos. The later rabbis would talk about the dibur, the word. There are chief angels in early Jewish literature, such as Yahoel. And Yahoel has so many of the aspects of God's nature, but isn't in fact God. And then there are Jewish writings about returned saints, the most famous being Enoch. Maybe you've heard of the book of Enoch. And these returned saints can do amazing things. But none of these was ever thought of as divine. No one ever worshipped Yahoel. No one ever held a sacred meal uh, inviting Yehoel to be present. People weren't baptized in the name of Yehoel. People didn't go around saying, Yehoel is Lord. Then in rabbinic writings that come after the time of Yeshua, we find some depictions of God being on earth while at the same time ruling the entire universe. 
The rabbis imaginatively talk about something that I think is delightful. They talk about God skipping from synagogue to synagogue, blessing Israel. He's skipping this morning from Beth Messiah to Tikvat David to bless all the people in both places. The rabbis talk about God appearing in the synagogue at the time the people recite the Shema, and they even say he can be seen between the fingers of the priests as they lift their hands to make the blessing. Watch closer next time and see if you catch a sight. The rabbis talk about great moments of history when God was in the world as the Memra, the Dibur, the Word, the Lagos. The rabbis talk about the Word creating the world. They say that the Word walked with Adam and Eve. They say that the Word closed the door of Noah's Ark. They say that the Word smote the firstborn of Egypt, and so on. The rabbis say the Shekhinah is with Israel that the Shekhinah remains in the world even today inside the Western Wall, that the Shekhinah is in exile with Israel in every place, even Columbus, Ohio, that the Shekhinah is driven away by sin, but that there will come a generation that will not drive the Shekhinah away. And when that happens, Messiah will come. The rabbis say that all Jews should aspire to have the Holy Spirit dwell inside of them. A little-known rabbinic teaching. Maybe some Jews today who don't understand rabbinic Judaism think we're weird for believing the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, but the rabbis unequivocally say every Jew should aspire to that very thing. In Judaism, God is not merely the distant creator. He is not the old man in the sky or the clockmaker who wound up the universe and left it running. And in Judaism, neither is God the force, a mere energy that exists in all things. In Judaism, God is both above the world and at the same time in specific places. In Kabbalah, God is both Ein Sof, the without end, incomprehensible, beyond all things, and the Sfirot, the emanations of God, which can be perceived, at least at the lower levels. Consider this famous passage in the rabbis about the Shekhinah, about it being here in the world. We Messianic Jews could almost replace the word Shekhinah here with the word Messiah, or the word Holy Spirit. So if it's printed on your page, or as I read it, imagine replacing the word Shekhinah with Messiah, or imagine replacing the word Shekhinah with Spirit. Come and see how beloved are the Israelites before God. For wherever they went into exile, the Shekhinah followed them. When they were exiled in Egypt, the Shekhinah followed them. As it says, did I plainly reveal myself to thy father's house when they were in Egypt? In Babylon, the Shekinah was there with them, as it said, for your sake I have been sent to Babylon. And when in the future Israel will be redeemed, the Shekinah will be there with them, as it is said, the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity. Numbers Rabbah 7.10 adds another line to it. It says, the Shekinah is with them in their dispersion, making it clear that this is true right now wherever Jews live. Where does this leave us? Are we Messianic Jews apostates, blasphemers? Well, obviously, I believe not. Our view of Messiah as God alongside God, our belief that God is a plurality within a unity, fits what came before. Our Jewish peers have a way of seeing God's nature that comes to the very edge of what we believe without crossing over. But something happened 2,000 years ago that adds new information that brings us to the next step. If the Hebrew Bible and Judaism are the temple... Yeshua is in the Holy of Holies, beyond the threshold, just past where Judaism brings us. There Yeshua is, the divine Messiah. 
In Judaism and in the Hebrew Bible, we see a trend happening over time. We see that the descriptions of God keep bringing him nearer and nearer to humanity. The next step was for God to take on humanity. It's true if you're going to talk to your Jewish friends. I'm going to say a lot more about this tonight and tomorrow morning. It's true that what we believe goes beyond Judaism, but Judaism was already moving in our direction. How near will God come to us? He will become so near that he will become one of us in order that we may become like him. Let's pray. Father, this truth that you came so near to us, that you became one of us and identified with us, and that you lifted up humanity with you when you ascended, it's something we would love for all of our Jewish peers to know. I believe, Lord, that our Jewish community has a great relationship with you, even not knowing Yeshua, but I believe that relationship would be so much deeper if more people in our Jewish community did know him. I pray that we would not be intimidated about our belief that Yeshua is divine. I I pray that we wouldn't hide it and make it the last thing that we say about our faith. I pray that it would be out there at the forefront, that like Chabad in their zeal for Messiah, we would have a zeal for the divinity of our Messiah. And that we would say, look, we're not just saying Yeshua is a great guy, a great teacher, or even that he's the Messiah, or that you can have an afterlife if you believe in him. We're saying he is God alongside God. He shares the nature of Ein Sof. He is the without end. He is the greater than whom none exists. He's not a chief angel. He's not a high semi-divine being. He is the source and the creator of all things. That is who our Messiah is. And I pray our vision of him would be greatly enlarged. In his name, amen.